You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to the conservative conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, in the house today in CR's Northern Command on this bright, sunny, beautiful day. It is September 11th, 2017. And wow, the weather is eerily similar to that day 16 years ago. So many of us remember um, today I'd really like to go over and reflect not just on the, the tribute to the victims of 9-11, but really the failed policies that we've been talking about the last number of weeks, months, dyslexic immigration policies, backwards foreign policy, backwards priorities. Um, in the meantime, we have so much going on this month in Congress, in this presidency as we've gone through. I'm going to link to in show notes just before we get down the rabbit hole of this discussion on the debt ceiling. Make sure you see my piece on the importance of the debt ceiling, the betrayal that took place last week. Let's not forget about that as if that didn't happen, which is what we kind of do every week. Um, We also have some great stuff on immigration. Mark Levin read my piece last week, 10 unanswered questions for those pushing the so-called dream amnesty. And, you know, really a good segue into this 9-11 discussion and the post 9-11 response and how how backwards our legacy has been over the last 16 years is the fact that everything we're discussing, whether it's healthcare, whether it's immigration in particular, it's always a matter of fact that we don't have a social contract. We don't have a social compact anymore. Everything our government officials do is either for a select group of people, it's for a special interest, it's for a foreign interest, it's to serve the pagan gods of political correctness, but it's never to serve the whole of the people, the interests of the citizenry as a whole. That is their job. And at its core, that's what 9-11 was all about from a public policy standpoint. I don't want to certainly step upon, step over the solemn tribute and remembrance of just the, the heroes and everything of that, that took place on the day. But from a public policy standpoint, the job of a government is to ensure that things like that don't happen, that things like that never happen again. And not just 9-11 per se in the same, uh, you know, orchestrated attack with the same magnitude by the similar type of people, but to ensure that in general, the safety and security of Americans will come before any other interest. And that everything we do, every military action, every decision we make, what to engage in, what to, not to engage in, every investment overseas, every immigration policy, every homeland security policy, will take that into account first and foremost. Everything else will yield to that, to that one need because that is at its core what the social compact is, why we have a government in the first place. And as we know, in 9-11, there were, there were many, many uh, warning signs before where political correctness allowed 
these individual hijackers to slip through to go undetected or they were really detected. And since then, we've had endless attacks on our soil. Thank God, nothing near the magnitude of 9-11. But nonetheless, they have been attacks and attempted ta- attacks almost every day due to political correctness that we've allowed in people into our country who shouldn't have allowed, and we still have refused to recognize that. Now, I wanted you to hear another voice today. It's funny that in the political class, you hear people like Charles Krauthammer, all these famous voices that honestly have never said a smart word in their entire lives. I I just don't understand the draw of people like Krauthammer um, and, and the like on Fox News. But nonetheless, um, you're going to hear the smart takes, the hot takes, like like every anniversary of 9-11, from people that embody this mentality, this backwards mentality that has been plaguing our political class, our political elites on, you know, pretty much every day of the week since 9-11. We, we kind of slayed the political correctness for a couple months, but then we resorted back to it. But there's young minds and young voices, even younger than my own, in this movement that I think you guys need to hear from. I've quoted before, uh, shared some of his work on the conservative conscience. My colleague, my buddy here, Jordan Schachtel, one of the young enough upcoming voices, he is our foreign policy slash national security correspondent. Um, I mean, really has exposed a lot of the stuff in the Trump administration, the Tillerson, Mattis, McMaster stuff that we've talked about so much in depth here. America last instead of America first, which is so important to recognize today. Today should be all about America first. Patriots Day, as we remember, the 16th anniversary of 9-11, the fifth anniversary, by the way, of Benghazi, the four people killed there. And... um, what better voice to just I, I, I really I've, I've meant to introduce him to, to you guys for, for quite some time, but I want to bring him in to have a more in-depth discussion of what we've done in foreign policy, what we've done national security wise, what we should be doing. We're going to link to his piece, my piece, respectively, lots of show notes. Make sure you read them before the show. With no further ado, hey, Jordan, are you on the line? I'm here. It's good to be with you. And thanks for that introduction. Really appreciate it. No, I'm telling you, I really wanted to bring you on for quite some time. Um, you know, not too many people in America have heard of Daniel Horowitz and Jordan Schachtel. Um, you know, everyone has heard of these same troublemakers that have gotten us into this problem, whether they're on the inside of government, whether they're on the outside commentating, cheerleading for the very fail- failed policies. It's time people hear a new voice. And I don't know where to start from, but... Um, you know, first off, Jordan, j- just to give our listeners some sense of where we're coming from, because I think it's important to hear from a new generation that is almost never known in America pre-9-11. How, how old were you during 9-11, and what, what do you remember from the day? Yeah, so I, must, I was in middle school, so I must have been 13 years old. But um, living across the river from Manhattan, you know, it forever changed my life and my perspective and i think it led me to the path where i am today and i think you would also um say the same thing i know you're a few years older than i am but um our generation millennials and the generation beforehand i think was so affected by 9-11 and it really woke all of us up to the threats that are coming from abroad and from inside the country and 
it, it just, you know, developed this entirely new generation that you're right. You don't see on television, but there's a, there's a new generation of very serious, um, thinkers and scholars, uh, who, who won't make their way to MSNBC or Fox news, but are talking about these issues in ways that really resonate with the American people. Um, we have a couple pieces up at conservative review today, one by me, one by you, um, where both of us really go into, um, not only the Islamic doctrine that we've ignored since 9-11, but also the immigration issue and, you know, the complicity through Saudi Arabia and Iran. It's stuff that people, that, you know, our, our supposed elite still won't touch uh, 16 years later. Exactly. And, and one of the things I want to talk about today, and I know we've done in the past, certainly here, we've had our buddy Patrick pull on just to discuss how even the so-called hawkish movement to be hawkish on Islamic terror has really been hijacked by um, a lot of people that I'd say in some respects they mean well, other respects they're just completely off in strategy. You know, right when 9-11 happened, as you mentioned, I was a couple years older. I was in 12th grade in school um, at the time in the morning. And, you know, I remember, and obviously always growing up in Maryland, um, I never paid attention to Muslims on the street. I mean, I really didn't see them too much and really wasn't much of an issue to the extent I ever heard of Islamic terror. Um, it was always just following the news across the world and what's going on in Israel and the Middle East in particular. Um, but I never realized what we actually had done. Um, you know, I was kind of a nerd in in the respect that even though I was pretty young, I was following uh, public policy very closely, you know, as any 12th grader could. Um, but I, I never really, un you know, to me, the reaction was like everyone else. Oh, my gosh, we've got to strike back. But, you know, because we treated it as if it was like Pearl Harbor, that we were attacked by a specific nation, something that we could redress militarily in specific. But what was so frustrating about it is that this wasn't a military attack. And at its core, this was an immigration problem where we let in people we shouldn't have let. So not just the 19 people, but the fact that we had domestic cells, some of it was related to foreign entities, some of them weren't, of Muslim Brotherhood-inspired leadership. You had Enwar al-Awlaki that was in contact with them, that this man was holding court, giving briefings in the Pentagon lunchroom, you know, within weeks of when his disciples flew planes into it. And... We were self-immolating. We had Muslim Brotherhood at the highest levels of government. We still do. And yet all we want to talk about is Iraq, Afghanistan. We can't allow Iraq and we can't allow Afghanistan to fall. One of the things I was thinking about, I want to see get, get your take on this. You look at when Americans are confronted with adversity, they're confronted with tragedy, they step up to the plate. Moral clarity and common sense kick in. You see that with the orderly evacuation of the World Trade Center, what the firefighters did. Um, unbelievable. A couple hundred firefighters easily saved 5,000, maybe 10,000 people that would have otherwise been killed, wouldn't have gotten out in time. Um, there's an amazing video out there we'll link to in show notes on the the um, the evacuation through through boats, just the, the whole boat evacuation. I know you you were living in New Jersey, but a lot of people commuted back to New Jersey. It was evidently the biggest evacuation ever 
beyond Dunkirk, 500,000 people, um, just ordinary people together with the Coast Guard, Merchant Marines, um, obviously Flight 93, let's roll. There was no political correctness. In other words, when people are faced with danger, they do what they need to do. Yet from a public policy standpoint, we should have isolated the problems, identified the problems, gone after that, not got distracted with things that weren't our problems. And we did just the opposite. We flushed our resolve and our resources into Iraq and, and Afghanistan that didn't affect us. We didn't go after the funders, Saudi Arabia and Iran. And then we left our front doors open. Jordan, in your mind, are we better off or worse off than we were 16 years ago? Well, it's interesting because before 9-11, this problem was already percolating. You had you know, groups like CARE, which were later exposed as the front group for Hamas, and the Muslim Brotherhood Network started to um, infiltrate America you know, in the mid-20th century. So this was um, not only an immigration problem, but a radical ideology that we refused to address. You know, whether that was because we were fighting the Soviet Union or we just didn't have educated um, people in our, you know, law enforcement and intelligence institutions that were ignoring the threat. Um, for some reason, we didn't tackle the radical Islam issue. Um, well, we still haven't tackled it, but we didn't wake up to it until 9-11. But um, as you mentioned, you know, 9-11 wouldn't have been possible had it not been for um just the, the very lax um, visa restrictions and the immigration stuff. And it, you know, it, it's really, it really comes back to, I think this, this issue of um, you talked about the, you know, American, we have like a sense of American um, exceptionalism. And I think that's rooted in our Western traditions, you know, our Judeo Christian values that when something bad happens in this country, people, as you saw, 9-11 really stepped up, um, not only random citizens, but you had off-duty cops and firefighters who were done working 24-hour shifts who were happy to put their uniforms back on, you know, and step up to the plate and save a lot of people, and a lot of folks lost their lives. And I think it, it's important to remember that on 9-11, that, you know, there's something uniquely great about being American, and you don't see that in other countries um, when tragedies happen and terrorist attacks happen you don't see that sense of, you know, taking care of, of one another and, um, you know, stepping up efforts to uh, save lives. So um, it, it's a very Western American thing where you're looking to help out, you know, your brothers and sisters in the streets um, while chaos is unfolding. I think we should really uh, remember what happened. And I think our policymakers can learn from that. You know, our just, um, our intuition is, is more, more or less correct most of the time in our instincts. And it's just very important to um, have clarity with these um, policy issues. You know, the clarity that you see in the immediate wake of a terrorist attack. Like, this is what we have to do. These are our objectives. This is what we need to do to stop the threat. No, exactly, exactly. I mean, and certainly you see it on display with Hurricane Harvey. Um, again, the civil society stepping up. And I, I don't think America is broken. It's, it's our political class that is confronted with common sense, and then they blot it out. No, we cannot do this. As you saw, I know you you monitor Tillerson very closely, Secretary of State. Um, he put out a statement today, um, not a single mention of Islamic terror, 
it's all the generic extremism, which is not an accidental word that is part of the Muslim Brotherhood subversion agenda. And, you know, this is something as a 12th grader, I got pretty early on. Um, I was like, wait a minute. I didn't know we had this in our country. And I know you're from northern New Jersey, which is pretty close to this uh, area, obviously close to ground zero. And there's a lot of debate now over how many Muslims were celebrating in the streets in America, in places in New Jersey, some other places um, when the Twin Towers fell. But I remember it at the time. I remember hearing about it. I remember reading about it. So it's not some sort of revisionist history. We could debate as to how many people there were. But that, to me, and I know it sounds kind of random, it was one of the most jolting things to me. I was like, oh, so those dudes that you have there in Gaza, we actually have them in our country. How many, how how many law, you know, how long have we been doing this? And then, you know, kind of, there's two facets to this. There's letting in new radicals and there's allowing the radicalism to foment on our shores and even empower it on a civil societal level and then a governmental level. So, you know, we've doubled down on immigration. We have doubled our immigration from about 50,000 a year from the Middle East to really 100,000 green cards plus 150,000 foreign students. You know, um, Paul Sperry has a great piece in the Washington, in the New York Post, uh, just recently discovered evidence in the big Saudi Arabia trial, the 1,600 families suing Saudi Arabia for 9-11, that the Saudi government funded evidently two foreign students, Saudi students, you know, one of the 9-11 hijackers was a foreign student, but two of these guys, I mean, one of them was going to be the muscle man for the, you know, the 20th hijacker, but wasn't allowed in uh, eventually, but they were here two years earlier and on a dry run and they funded that dry run. We have in 2004, we started the King Abdullah scholarship program where we started off letting in 5,000 Saudi students. Now we have 61,000 a year. I counted roughly 155,000 from all Middle Eastern Islamic countries. Um, the asylum on our border, the asylum loophole is wide open, as I note in my piece. Refugees, we have let in. I mean, the irony. It was an immigration problem. Boots on our, Jordan, boots on our, our, on our soil. Their boots on our soil. We go to Iraq, which has nothing to do with anything. We put our boots on their soil, and we let in, as a result of the war, 160,000 refugees. So, as you know, all this stuff, you know, asylum, obviously, U.S. Southern Command has reported that 30,000 Middle Easterns have been noticed to have crossed the border last fiscal year. Um, certainly could be many more. So, A, we have two problems. A 9-11 similar, 9-11 style attack, where you have an orchestrated attack, funded or trained overseas, you know, people who come in with the intention of committing a specific attack. But then you have Europe, the new paradigm, which I think we're seeing a lot more since 9-11. Thank God we haven't had another 9-11. And I think it's only the will of God, providential, that we haven't had that despite these security uh, holes. But what we have had is this growing fomentation of subversion, where in the long run, even if you have good intel, even if you aren't willfully blind there are so many people on this on our shores that don't share our values that you'll you'll eventually in 15 years maybe less have the european dynamic where jews cannot live safely in paris where there's terror attacks every single day 
And yet nobody is speaking to this. Everyone wants to talk about Afghanistan. What am I missing? No, and it, it, I think that was a, a real awakening moment for 9-11, especially growing up in northern New Jersey. You have the city of Patterson, New Jersey, which was probably like 15 miles from where I grew up, um, a pretty high Islamic population. And I remember reading these news reports and I was just so shocked. You know, how could someone support a terrorist attack that killed thousands and thousands of innocent people? And that's, I think that provided for me a real awakening to the domestic threats um, we face in this country, that there's a, an influential and growing group of um, you know, people that subscribe to the Islamic faith, um, a certain interpretation, you know, that wants to essentially, um, you know, eventually conquer the country from within. And, you know, people on cable TV will say, oh, that's crazy. You know, they're only uh, you know, 0.5% of the population, they don't pose a threat, you need to bring them into society and assimilate them. And the European project that you mentioned is the perfect example for why um, unchecked um, immigration from the Middle East is a, it, it will be an utter disaster for the United States. Uh, you can look no further than all over Western Europe, where you have these uh, Sharia cities that non-Muslims aren't even allowed into, the police won't go in there. And I think that is, and we can't be afraid to raise the alarm that that could be the next step for the United States if we don't stop this problem. And I think a lot a lot of people, you know, are working with you and others to really stop um, the unchecked Islamic immigration issue. Uh, there's a terrorist attack. It's kind of underreported in the U.S. media, but I'd say there's a terrorist attack that's thwarted or that goes through in Europe probably every single day. Um, so that's the reality that I think we can we would have to deal with if our policies continued with the unchecked refugees from the Syrian civil war or from these ISIS hotbeds in North Africa or from um, you know the Dagestan region. It's just it's just going to create problems for us. And, you know, while Americans all, you know, for the most part, we, we have a bit, we have a big heart and, you know, we, we feel for these people that are suffering under, you know, the threat of warfare. But as you mentioned in the, uh, you know, in the beginning of the show, first and foremost, we need to protect the nation. And if that means not allowing hundreds of thousands of immigrants into the country who we have no idea who they are and there's no way to vet them, and we need to do what we need to do to preserve the sovereignty and stability of our country. And that's the bottom line. And I think that's the message. One of the key things that we need to take from 9-11 is that in order to prevent more 9-11s, we need to get serious about um, national security. Exactly. That is the core. Never again and never forget. It means not pursuing the policies that led to it. And I, I thought I really and, and I felt guilty for thinking it at the time I, I was thinking, man, you know, you know, if this is what it takes to get us to slay the pagan altar of political correctness, maybe now we'll finally do it. And it looked like that way for maybe a few months. But the reality is this is where Bush went wrong. He went in, started going to the very Muslim Brotherhood organizations that are the current leadership of the Muslim community in America. And that's the problem and exalted them and said, we're not at war with Islam. Double down on immigration, although, by the way, 
just remember, at the beginning of 2002, Congress almost unanimously passed a visa shutoff from terrorist countries. And that is still the law of the land to this day. The exact opposite of what the um, kangaroo courts are doing. Uh, you know, it had a very expensive waiver authority and Bush and Obama used it. Um, and now now we're saying you have to use the waiver authority. But, you know, so there was some common sense at the very beginning. But then, you know, Pew has the numbers. We've doubled Muslim immigration. I think by now it's even more than double. Um, it's going on unabated. And, you know, again, I look at Europe and I'm thinking in some ways it's worse than 9-11 because 9-11 obviously killed almost 3,000 people. But theoretically, if you have good intel, uh, uh, an attack of that scope, you should be able to um, rat out if, if you, you know, if we didn't have the political correctness that overlooked all the all the signs. And you're certainly seeing that with pretty much every attack we've had since then, the smaller scale attacks, there was always what our buddy Patrick Poole calls the known wolves. They were known to the FBI. Um, but you're eventually going to get to a point where they might not even be known because it's just so ubiquitous. It's yeah. It could come from anywhere, any community. And, you know, the first step should have been no more immigration. We need to focus on assimilating the ones already here. Number two, then focus on the leadership. And I think what we discovered in 2007 with the whole Holy Land Foundation trial is that while not all Muslims, you know, are engaged in terror or necessarily even subscribe to jihad, some of them might be just trying to live their lives, but the entire leadership structure, much like, much like the leadership in every community is kind of broken, they get, you know, involved in their broader pan-global agenda. So unfortunately, the pan-global agenda for Islam is jihad. Almost every charity organization, even some of the ones that incidentally might do do some charity too, aren't hooked in with Hamas and they're hooked in with these organizations. And that was very unsettling and we needed to go after that. Instead, we shut it down. Um, it's funny, I wasn't planning on talking about this, but I just saw, uh, you know, in, in, in the Daily Caller, in a good article, our buddy Ron DeSantis had an amendment to from the state foreign ops appropriation bill to ensure that we sanction Islam, um, what is that called? Islam Relief, the terror group. I'm, I'm, I'm losing it here because there's so many. Islamic Relief. Islamic, Islamic Relief. Relief. Largest Muslim charity group uh, based out of Britain, but it's, it's, I think it's still considered the largest one in America. That's the problem. It's on our yeah, shores. The problem, the, the problem also is that, as you, as you said, the Muslim Brotherhood has taken over the majority of Islamic institutions in the United States, and they did that purposefully, and they were shielded by the politicians in Washington, D.C. who refused to do anything about it. You know, we do have cooperative, there's, you know, thousands of cooperative Muslims and many who work with the FBI and all these intelligence agencies to stop terrorist attacks. And we should empower those people by getting rid of these Muslim Brotherhood groups, you know, and, and sanctioning them as terrorist organizations. And that's the best thing we can do for the Muslim community. The worst thing is, I don't think that, I think people forget that President Bush, as you mentioned earlier, set the agenda for President Obama to follow through with the whitewashing of, you know, Islamic doctrines, connection to terrorism. And even you'll see our Arab Muslim allies are now ahead of us in this fight, which is just, it, it, we, we have policies in place right now that are actually 
hurting the uh, the reformist elements of the Muslim community through both the left and I'd say the the main not the establishment right in Congress and the presidency again by refusing to deal with these issues. Uh, President Trump, I think he did promise to designate the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization, and he's never followed through on that. And if he just does something that simple. Jordan, stop right there. You you said he didn't follow through with it, but that wasn't by accident. It's not because he forgot. Yeah, well, there are people in government that I guess have gotten to him. I've done extensive reporting on the views of General uh, McMaster and Secretary Tillerson, and they are adamantly opposed to designated the Brotherhood as, as a terrorist group. And when you have the swamp bureaucracy telling you things constantly, you're eventually going to start to believe it. So for whatever reason, Trump has backed off of that um, you know, critical issue. The, the biggest Islamic group in the United States right now is the Islamic Society of North America. They claim to have the biggest membership, I think, followed by CARE. And both of them are Muslim Brotherhood founded groups that raised money for Hamas. You know, it's just wildly irresponsible that we should give them 501c3 status and ignore their ties to terrorism. And, you know, I report in these guys' conferences, and all you have to do is watch the videos. It's not just Linda Sarsour, but they have uh, radical imams get to the podium in front of thousands of people and preach against the United States and Israel and the Jews and the Crusaders, and it, it goes on and on. It, it's just unbelievable yep. that we're not doing anything about this. On our shores. This is not in Gaza. This is not in Pakistan. Um, this is certainly not in Kabul and Baghdad. And so let's move on to the juxtaposition of how backwards our response was following 9-11 and, and as backwards uh, today than, than ever before. So it, it's bad enough if you continue the root problem. You continue letting in the problem. You continue allowing it to fall, you know, j- just uh, fester on your shores um, without shutting it down. And it doesn't cost you anything. It doesn't cost you 7,000 lives of troops and 50,000 wounded to do that. It doesn't cost you roughly $3 trillion we've spent, I've counted, on the major operations. And those are just direct costs. The indirect costs are close to $7 trillion because all the VA costs and everything, the depleted military hardware... Um, it would be bad enough if we just did nothing. If we just, you know, continued the same backwards homeland security policies. But instead, we go overseas and we made all the wrong choices. So the way I look upon it, and it's not an accident, it's the swamp way of thinking. This is what Bill Buckley always meant when he said, you know, he'd rather be governed by the first 10 names in a telephone book than the Yale faculty. Because as we said, I mean, the common sense of your average person, like we d- discussed the, the victims of 9-11, the, the heroes of 9-11, um, they'll step up to the plate because God has created us with the natural instinct of self-preservation. But evidently, there is something in all the institutions of political and military leadership of Western democracies in this day and age to specifically self-immolate. And if you had to look at 100 different options globally, geopolitically, what we can and cannot do, investments, alliances, uh, military engagements, you could literally make a matrix of priority number 100, we make priority number one. Priority number one, we make priority number 100. And worse, we make things even worse. So, you know, my understanding of 9-11 is, again, 90% of it is 
it was avoidable. It was it was just straight up domestic. Is immigration visas, Muslim Brotherhood agenda, Anwar al laki types on our so, on our shores that not only were not arrested and thrown in jail and executed, but were downright given platforms within our government uh, to serve as the as the the firefighters instead of the arsonists. They were the ones that were viewed as the Muslim leadership. But then, as it relates to foreign policy, isn't it all about when you're not dealing with nation states? It's all about money. It's money. It's the instigation. It's the and the nation states like Iran, Saudi Arabia, at least at the time, was definitely the problem, if not downright behind it. Um, now, ironically, as you mentioned, we're we're more liberal on Islam than Saudi Arabia, but I'd say Qatar and Turkey are probably the new. Saudi Arabia in that respect on the Sunni side. Um, you got um, Iran both on the Shia and Sunni side, even though they're Shias. To this day, the State Department, the Treasury Department has sanctioned uh, Al-Qaeda leaders in Iran, so they're clearly harboring them. And yet we're focused on the mud hut munchkins in Afghanistan. Could you explain to me how Kabul has become too big to fail, yet we bring Kabul to our shores we bring Kabul to the McMaster's NSC. <laughs> we bring Kabul um, to every every institution. We have care oversee our. Um, I get get a tour of O'Hare's airport security, um, and we ignore Turkey. We ignore Qatar. What is going on here? Is there any way we could right this ship? So, with regard to Afghanistan, of course, after nine eleven, we went in there because that's where Osama bin Laden was. But the lessons of 9-11, um, we didn't really take into account because Osama bin Laden would not have been able to mastermind and coordinate that attack without outside help. Um, although he was a wealthy man, he did not have the millions and millions and millions of dollars needed to finance such a sophisticated exactly. operation. So they went to state funders. And as you said, Afghanistan is not a place where people are building nuclear weapons and advanced weapons of warfare. We don't need to ever worry about, well, not ever, but in the, the way things are in Afghanistan right now and the way the culture has been for hundreds of years is that Afghanistan is made up of two kinds of people. And I'm not saying this like in a, in a bigoted way. It's the culture of Afghanistan is you farm to survive and there's also nomadic tribes that move around the country to trade, again, um, to support their families. And it's just a very poor nation. And the only way that something can be plotted from Afghanistan and pulled up in the United States is if there's outside support for it. So that's why it's kind of confusing when we've been in Afghanistan for 16 years the Al-Qaeda and ISIS maybe have a few hundred fighters there. It's not really clear that, you know, they're capable of operating out in the open. I don't think they are. And we've sent tens of thousands of soldiers into the wilds of Afghanistan. Um, and our generals and leaders are telling us that it's because it's better to fight them there <laughs> than for them to come over here. But well, the only way for them to come over here is for us to let them to come let over them. Here. And by the way, we've <laughs> let in more as a result of the Afghan war. We, we still the last budget bill, we had 4000 special immigrant visas, um, you know, and then because we're helping the Afghan people and the Afghani government, which is saturated with Taliban. 
Um, and again, the Taliban, like we said, it's not a trans or international terrorist organization. They're not even designated as one to this day. They're sadly, I mean, they're horrible people, but they're a reflection of the people there. They're very Islamic. The people are Islamic, but they, unlike Hezbollah, unlike Al-Qaeda, unlike Iran, there's no, there were no international aspirations there to take us on. Yeah, they harbored them, and yeah, maybe we should have blown them up a little bit in order to have some justice there. But as you mentioned, it was a lawless place. So that's where Al-Qaeda just set up shop, and they certainly you know, didn't mind it because they're Islamists. But there's about 60, 70 Muslim countries where you know, parts of the population and lawless areas would be more than happy to have training camps there. Right. But it doesn't speak to the issue to sink ourselves into trying to put the, those countries together it's you know you 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 send missiles to those training camps, you blow them up, and then you go after the funding. You go after and, and it costs us much less. It, you know, trying to put together fourteen tribal warfare, fourteen way tribal warfare that Alexander the Great couldn't deal with. No, nobody could deal with the last thirteen hundred years in Afghanistan. Lose what was it, sixteen hundred lives or so we lost or two no two thousand, um, twenty thousand wounded. All we've done is you know. North Korea, Iran, China, Russia, they're laughing to the bank while we depleted our resolve and resources there. And he- here we are. We, we, have to, we have to accept at some point that we're not going to change the culture of the Afghan people. And it's it just as simple as that. They're, they're probably never going to enjoy liberal democracy as much as we try to impose it upon them. They want to live by their certain way of life. And it's unfortunate that the Taliban is taking over the country. And I think you and I definitely feel for them, the people that are caught in the middle of it. But the Ameri- there is no American role other than counterterrorism in Afghanistan right now. You know, the, the nation building since 9-11 has historically failed. And as you said, cost us trillions of dollars. And to kind of pivot over to the threats we face, um, looking you know, on the anniversary now, there's a lot of countries that can do far worse than 9-11 to us at their present state. And we have up and coming actors like Iran uh, that are able to, you know, garner sophisticated networks and move them into the United States. And they're also developing a nuclear weapon. And then we have North Korea, which has a nuclear weapon, and Pakistan, which is harboring terrorists that has a nuclear weapon and there's just so many big big threats out there and you can add china to that you can add russia to that that are all you know that we can be doing things to mitigate those threats but instead our entire foreign policy team um, from general mattis to most of the folks in the pentagon are plotting how to win um a 50,000 square foot area of Afghanistan and hold the land for a hundred people that, you know, don't pose any threat to us. So it's just very concerning that we have limited resources and, you know, our country isn't in perfect fiscal condition to say the least. And we should be addressing the immediate and short-term and long-term threats to these countries. And I don't think Afghanistan as significant as it was, in the aftermath of 9-11 to take out al-Qaeda, I think we accomplished that mission and it's time to focus on all the other threats, especially the ones connected to the radical Islamic doctrine we've been talking about. 
Wow, that, that Jordan, that's very profound because what you're getting at is really the brilliance of the founders of the Constitution. That at the end of the day, they wanted a declaration of war to be in the hands of Congress. And it wasn't just a matter of, you know, preventing a rogue president from, you know, bankrupting the nation and getting us entangled in things. It was also politically very smart because, you know, as we talk about here so often on immigration, that the most important decisions of a society, getting back to the social compact, it has to be expressed through the legitimacy of the majority of the people as Madison always talked about, through the elected representatives. So you have a debate over a war. It's not just a debate whether to go to war, but a declaration of war, or at least an AUMF, AUMF, an authorization of use of force, at least will force you to articulate on paper, like we did with World War II, who is the enemy, what are they, what's their threat doctrine, how do they threaten us, how do we redress that, how do we uh, exit? You know, done. Um we're, we're still flying on 16 years, and, and the dynamics have changed. Afghanistan is the least important place. Um, Iraq is now, thanks to what we did, unfortunately, is now I- Iran's playground. Um, the only saving grace there is the Kurds, which we refuse to support in the upcoming uh, bid for independence in uh, you know September 20, 25th coming up. Um, Saudi Arabia, I, I think we should have gone after them more after 9-11. Now, ironically... As long as we keep them off our shores from funding their poison on our shores, I think there's a lot we could use their own malfeasance against them and against the other enemies. Go after Qatar. Go after Turkey. And l- l- let me just read a list of um, – and just one other thing. Iran, as you mentioned, Iran is both a conventional threat that if we don't end the Iran deal and then go in the opposite direction, they'll become like North Korea except with the radical Islamic mindset, which is even more dangerous – so they're going to have ICBMs that could that could hit us. Um, and I just want to read from the 9-11 Commission report. There's strong evidence that Iran facilitated the transit of al-Qaeda members into and out of Iraq before 9-11 and that some of these were future 9-11 hijackers. So you see, even back then, they were more of the problem. Afghanistan is a is a wasteland. They just hang out there because it's a wasteland. There's nothing to own there. It's It's what orchestrates them. Um, to the extent there's any, ever any threat of them developing training camps again, again, usually, you know, threats don't come from the same thing. It, it's dynamic. But even then, it's it's number one, immigration. Number two, and the domestic subversion through better intel and the political correctness. Use every constitutional tool we have to, you know, look, I always said if you have pastors, um, no, what are they called? Imams talking trash about America. Um, if they are not U.S. citizens but it doesn't rise to the level of treason. You have first amendment rights, but you don't have the right to be here. And we could say goodbye. We could deport you. And it's pretty much current law. We should just strengthen that. And then you just cut off the funding. You, you, you cut off again. It's, it's, it's a cutter. It's Turkey and it's Iran. Finally, Jordan, I want to get to the non-Islamic threat. We have nine 11 Incidentally, was Islamic th- threat. I still believe fundamentally it's the biggest existential threat to Western civilization. But there's one asterisk there that's non-Islamic, although it's connected to Iran, and that's North Korea. North. So, j- just so our listeners understand, America could only be under attack attack from an army, a navy, an air force, or ICBMs. Now, until now, nobody really had that ability capability. 
um, as of 9-11, and that's not how we were attacked. So it wasn't a military problem that is redressable through military action for the most part, um, at least in the long run, through heavy occupations. You know, you have some retribution, but it was an immigration problem. It was an intel problem because we let people in so they could come in through immigration. So we're, we're bringing in the immigration into our country. But then on the other hand, as it relates to foreign policy, we have North Korea that could hit us right now and Iran that's closely behind. And now there doesn't seem to be an appetite to do anything about North Korea. Yeah, it, it, it's very strange, especially because, you know, while they are not radical Islamic ideologues, you have a leader in North Korea that recognizes, I think, the vulnerability of his stature there. Um, only so many people are willing to starve before they overthrow the government. And that's why I was, I think both of us were so encouraged with President Trump's rhetoric, initial rhetoric on North Korea, at least on, you know, I don't think that any of it became policy, but at least his internal thoughts that he would put forward on Twitter. And then you see the liberal panic where they'd say, oh my God, you know, you can't, you can't say that we're going to strike North Korea. You can't say that. Um, But it's so important because the reason why North Korea is getting away with what they are getting away with is because their, you know, giant, which is their, which su- supplies them with everything, doesn't take seriously the threat that the United States or South Korea could impose on them through a first strike. And because that option has been taken off the table so many times, China, you know, the last thing China wants is for the North Korean regime to fall. So they'd never want the United States to get involved there. But if they actually thought that the United States was entertaining, at least entertaining the possibility, they might reform their policies. Um, But we don't see that again through this administration um, because President Trump, for whatever reason, his his um, policy ideals somehow never make it from social media to paper. And it's a problem because there's so much that can be done and we can really as we we've discussed, you know, in many articles between both of us and conservative review, there are tools that America has in its arsenal to affect um, North Korean policy internally and externally with its relations with its neighbors. Uh, North Korea is trading secrets with Iran. Um, it's tougher to reign in Iran, but we have enormous influence over China. So the key, I think, is is through China. You can threaten them. You can even impose some type of unfriendly trade trade policies. But the threat needs to be real. And I think Ronald Reagan um, articulated this best with regard to the Soviet Union. You know, he there were some things he just wouldn't tolerate, and he drew red lines and, and backed them up for the most part. And I think peace through strength. We need to get back to peace through strength. And even many of our colleagues in um, conservative media, I think, have forgotten these principles that, you know, the way to a safe world and a safe America is to really um, push forward the the option that we aren't afraid of using force if necessary. And that doesn't mean we're imminently going to war, but our neighbors need to at least believe that that is a possibility. And right now they don't. So we need to obtain more leverage over North Korea. I think that's the best option moving forward to stop the threat 
No, very well said. And that's really the deterrent that we lost. I think immediately after 9-11, the good thing about Afghanistan was that people knew, oh my gosh, we're serious. So if nothing else, it was worth it. Um, you know, I came of political age, even though I was pretty young in the 90s, just watching Clinton do nothing. And everyone knew, everyone knew that he just didn't care. And we really changed that around. But again, through the dyslexic... Um, kiss up to the Islamic organizations, the Muslim Brotherhood, doubling down on immigration instead of shutting it off, and then moving away from counterterrorism to just owning everyone else's dumpster fire, what we did in Afghanistan ultimately, and then Iraq, it just, everyone knew we're, we're so bogged down not putting our interests first, and this at its core is what Trump was elected for, what he promised for. No, you know, we'll come in and take their oil. You know, and you know, people laugh at that, but the mentality behind it was, wait a minute, we're going to put our people first. We are going to put our people first. Unfortunately, he has an America last administration now, thanks to all the generals he, he elevated to civilian positions, the very generals that have failed us. But at its core, the lesson of 9-11 is you have to identify where are the threats. And a lot of it's Islamic through immigration, Iran, the funding the funding of subversion on our soil, Turkey cutter, but then the non-Islamic threats of North Korea is the perhaps the most profound. And you know, in future uh, episodes, I want to get more into Mexico with the drug cartels and the violence on our border. It's it's an it's presenting an immigration problem, but also a security problem right on our border. We care about Kabul, but we don't seem to care about um, stability just three miles below us. Um, it's all a matter of identifying this is our problem. This could cause another, maybe a different type of 9-11, but murder and mayhem for Americans. We as a government have a responsibility to bulldoze anything else in order to achieve that stability we need and prevent these type of attacks. Um, and that that has been completely lacking. It's still lacking from both parties' strategic thinking because we refuse to identify the enemy. We refuse to really uh, stand... First and for foremost, for our own needs, um, I just want to read off real quickly before I let let you go, Jordan, and just get a brief comment because we don't have the time to go into all this. But just to summarize, in in show links on our note on our article here, sixteen years after nine eleven, do our policies honor those who sacrificed? I have um, I summarized a graphic of Middle East strategy do's and don'ts for fighting terror. Just to summarize, just because we're so backwards, what we should be doing, we're not doing um, what we do. We absolutely should avoid like the plague, but yet we do anyway. Um, you know, one one thing I just wanted to go over with you, just just to, you know, really bring out the importance of getting our priorities right. Submit the Iran deal to the Senate as a treaty and abrogate it if it fails to get 67 votes. In the scheme of what we're talking about, why is changing directions on Iran so important at this juncture? Well, Iran, unless you're so fooled by the, their rhetoric in them promising not to develop a nuclear weapon, Iran is very serious about developing a nuclear weapon, as would any other developing country that realizes what comes with holding only one nuclear weapon in their arsenal. You can rule over your civilization basically forever or until someone 
you know, overthrows you, but it's, it, it gives you so much leverage to have a nuclear weapon. And that's why it's so important to get rid of the Iran deal because it established a precedent um, for them to achieve it in only the next decade, if not sooner. Um, there are no, there are no um, overseers going to inspectors going to Iran right now. The UN has completely um, given up the IAEA's role in the process. The capitulating Western Europeans have no interest in keeping Iran in check. They'd rather trade with them because a lot of those countries are struggling financially. And it's our responsibility to send it to Congress. And, you know, we're not playing games here. We know what would happen. And we want that result. We want the Iran deal to be over. And I think it reflects the Congress right now reflects the consensus of the American people. They think it was a disaster. I mean, we gave billions of dollars to these people, and we need to cut off the funds, and we need to hold our defense contractors, like Boeing, who make billions of dollars off of the American people through guaranteed contracts. Um, they should not be allowed to be sending billions of dollars in aircraft and weapons to Iran. I think that's also part of our suicidal nature. And just uh, to, con- to wrap this all up, I wanted to... Uh, this list of do's and don'ts is so important because it refl- a lot of it reflects how much has changed since 9-11. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we need to ask for our government to be able to adapt. And a lot of this stuff with Turkey and Gutter, um, it's part of an institutional bureaucracy that refuses to adapt to the time. I mean, we have so much opportunity in the Middle East now and so many weird tangling alliances that aren't justified anymore. Uh, so that's why we need to have policymakers and thinkers that are moving the agenda forward. You know, when it comes to Qatar or Turkey or recognizing Kurdistan or decentralizing Iraq or, you know, reinvigorating our relationship with Israel, there are so many things that can be done to protect American national interests that for only bureaucratic reasons aren't getting done. And that's what we can do in this, you know, post 9-11 age to enhance our stability and security. Well, there you have it, folks. A new brilliant mind, Jordan Shackdale, honored to be our national security correspondent here at CR, um, knows more than all the clowns at Fox News and in the Trump administration. Just a shame that we don't have these people to drain the swamp with. Maybe next time, better luck next time. Maybe Trump will, you know, have a change in heart. We can only pray to God that, you know, God places in his heart and mind the right things to do to make the right choices. But again, to make the right choices, you have to understand what your job is. And your job is to protect the American people first, not even allies and certainly not our enemies that are fake allies, but certainly to protect Americans first. Um, That is the fiduciary responsibility of any government, certainly the American government founded upon constitutional republic. Um, We're just about out of time. Thanks so much, Jordan, for joining us. We hope this is the first of many um, broadcasts together because, by golly, we're going to need a lot of this coming up with North Korea, a lot of other stuff going on. Um, Make sure you guys get your CRTV subscription, uh, just 89 bucks a year with promo code Horowitz. Um, We're going to have a lot of other exciting announcements coming in the coming weeks, weeks for now. Make sure uh, you go to iHeart. You can now get our show downloaded on on iHeart. I usually listen to most radio shows through iHeart, so I'm really excited about that. But we will have more exciting announcements to come. Until next time, we'll never forget the sacrifice of our soldiers, 
of the firefighters who fought and saved so many people on 9-11, of Flight 93. Let's roll, folks. Let's do everything in our power to take back our government and ensure that nothing like 9-11 ever happens again. God bless. Until next time, this has been another episode of Conservative Conscience.